I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. And this is Praz the Sandman, feeding your brains while passing lots of gas over the radio waves. <laughs> what a terrible tragedy that would be if possible. <laughs> I would never hear the end of it. Well, I'm glad that uh, I'm not glad that you're passing gas, but I do think it is an excellent segue for this week's show. And you know, Praz, you weren't with us when we started four years ago, but our very first episode dealt with all things gastrointestinal. Really? Huh? Yeah, it was about. It was titled "Have Runs, Will Travel." <laughs> and it dealt with the experiences that Dr. Ward and I had in India, land of Delhi Belly. I've uh, been there. That is no longer on the iTunes feed, but for those of you interested, you can track it down on our Squarespace page. Link is in the show notes. But I figured it was time to go back and revisit some of the things in our digestive system, and it was only appropriate that we pulled an expert up from the bowels where we could find them. Let's introduce our special guest expert for the week, Dr. Bhargava Ganavarapu. Hey, Bhargava. Pleasure being here. Thanks for having me. So before we start getting super immature, as we are wont to do, (laughs) what sort of things would you like to tell everyone about yourself? Well, currently, I am a gastroenterologist. I'm an attending physician at the University of Illinois in Chicago with a specialty in advanced endoscopy. And particularly, I kind of deal more with pancreatic biliary diseases, but I also deal with gastrointestinal cancers, particularly treatment of early cancer, as well as anything involving palliation. A little bit of a nutshell of what I deal with, but I 
it's particularly with, with the use of an endoscope that I try to do whatever I can to help people. You know, I couldn't do a proper episode without getting into at least a little bit of history. Well, ancient Egypt is one of my favorite historical periods, and we've pulled from a lot of medical techniques there in the past as well. Of course, there are the famous Ebers papyrus and a couple others that talk about different techniques, but... You may not be aware of this, Bhargava, but the very first gastroenterologist that we know of was an ancient Egyptian from the 10th, the 10th dynasty who was identified as Iranakti, court physician to the pharaoh Merikari. And he is specifically referred to as, to be fair, a bit more of a proctologist, which when translating the hieroglyphics, and this was great, is a herder of the anus. Herder. <laughs> Okay. So the hieroglyphics were translated by scholar John Nunn, and he mentions that this Iranakti was felt to explore the gastrointestinal tract through scientific experiments that consisted of feeding subjects a variety of diets and observing the effect it had on moods, behavior, and health. And that's really most of what's been translated. We don't know a lot about him. We do know he was a herder of the anus and interested in how eating things could change people's health. How would you say that relates to what you do now? Well, the most common question I get from a patient whenever I visit with them in clinic, because I personally think the two biggest complaints that send patients to go see a doctor are back pain and stomach pain. And so a lot of times we'll do our preliminary work of just to make sure it's nothing life-threatening or make sure that they don't have obvious evidence of cancers or, or, or make sure we do a thorough workup. But at the end of the day, we have all these patients who have uh, what we call, we now call irritable bowel syndrome or functional bowel issues. But diet is the number one question that's asked to me, like, Doc, what is good for me? What can I eat? What is bad for me? And the truth of the matter is, I mean, we can give suggestions as clinicians. Realistically, I don't think we're any better at figuring out what foods make people worse. And we do know a few things. We know, for example, as people get older, lactose intolerance tends to be an issue that becomes more and more of a problem. Josh, you may have some personal experience, not to call you out on this. But... <laughs> hey, hey, don't shame but, uh... me for being lactarded. correct and then lately gluten has been something that has also kind of been getting into a lot of press lately in terms of things that are gluten-free and that kind of stems from celiac disease which is an actual like autoimmune enteropathy where gluten triggers the immune system to essentially destroying the villi of the small intestine therefore causing what we call enteropathy or small bowel disease so diet does definitely have a contributing factor in terms of several digestive diseases your typical college student who will scarf down an entire pizza not just a slice but an entire pizza you know may get that episodes of heartburn and GERD and for people with long-standing issues of, of heartburn or gastroesophageal reflux disease, that's what GERD stands for, um, you know, diet definitely has a contributing role into it. But when we get into the nitty-gritty of it, there are obviously certain conditions for which we know that there are certain diets or thing foods that people should avoid or should eat. We're getting into a new era of finding out the role of diet and in terms of what causes bloating, for example. I mean, Bloating is such a vague symptom. I haven't even begun to talk about the role of bacteria and how the bacteria digest the foods we eat. Your bowels have another ecosystem within there, whereby diet can definitely have a contributing role in that. But 
almost so, like a middle intestinal pretty- earth. I, I just imagine a tiny little <laughs> wizard in the center of my belly going, you shall not pass. Our gut has good bacteria, which you can imagine being the fellowship of hobbits trying to help keep peace and joy in the world. And then we also have our Saurons of the world causing anywhere from bloating to constipation to diarrhea. So, well, before we get to these enteric orcs, I'll give you a little more, a little more history. So after ancient Egypt, really gastroenterology wasn't its own sort of specialty or even too many advancements weren't made until the early 18th century and around 1729, Lazaro Spallanzani, it's a great Italian name, Lazaro Spallanzani conclusively disproved the theory of trituration. Now, trituration was how most people thought the stomach worked from ancient Egypt until the 18th century. And that posited that food was ground up inside the body, like a rock crusher or a mortar and pestle or, you know, an orc with a hammer. And Spallanzani was the very first one to show that the digestive process was mostly chemical, that enzymes, although not what he calls them, but that products and gastric juices were responsible for turning food input into waste output. And this was a huge thing that kind of shook the medicine world at the time and inspired a whole bunch of scientists, one of them being a gentleman by the name of Beryl Bernard Crone. I really love old-timey names. Beryl, Lazaro, like you, just, you don't see those kinds of names anymore. So Crone worked at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York, and during his time there, he began noticing a number of patients that had intestinal abnormalities inconsistent with other diseases. So most specialists at the time really thought this was just, you know, another manifestation of tuberculosis, which, as we've talked about in other episodes, can really get everywhere. But Crone identified it as a regional, meaning local only to one part of the body, a regional ileitis, which was then, of course, named for him today called Crohn's disease. So, Fargo, you have, I think, a lot of experience with Crohn's. What is it and kind of what's the GI doctor's role in it? We can't start with Crohn's without first introducing the idea of inflammatory bowel disease. So inflammatory bowel diseases are basically a broad umbrella term for any of the inflammatory conditions that can definitely involve the GI tract in the intestine. Now, typically, the two types of inflammatory bowel disease we think of are Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Ulcerative colitis typically just involves the colon and the rectum without involvement of any other parts of the GI tract, whereas Crohn's disease can involve any part of the GI tract from mouth to anus. And so it's important that it is important that we kind of distinguish between the two because you probably remember back in medical school, they said, oh, ulcerative colitis only involves the colon, whereas Crohn's disease only can involve anywhere there is a cure for ulcerative colitis. It is surgery. Removing the colon will definitely get rid of all your symptoms. As it turns out, we're starting to see that it may not necessarily be true because what happens is a lot of these patients will get their colon out and all of a sudden they'll get infl- inflammation of their small bowel. And then a lot of doctors will think, oh, well, they were misdiagnosed. They actually had Crohn's all along. Well, I don't think it's that simple, but that's a whole other topic in and of itself. But inflammation in general can be the body's immune system acting very irregularly or over-ramped, if you will, such that it causes 
a lot of damage and inflammatory changes anywhere. It can involve ulcers involving the mouth, the anus, or it can be full thickness. With Crohn's disease, it typically can involve the ileum, which is the last part of the small intestine. And so anyone who gets what we call ileitis or inflammation of the ileum can definitely have, we, we start to wonder whether they can truly have Crohn's disease. They can also develop fistulas. Now, fistulas are abnormal communication tracts, so it's basically like little two little communications between different organ systems that should not be communicating. You know, so in other words, you can develop a fistula that can lead to abscesses and infections, and a lot of other things. Crohn's patients can also have what we call extraintestinal manifestations, whereby they get rashes and they can get joint pain and they can actually develop something called uveitis. There's a lot of things. Now, in terms of what causes Crohn's disease, we're not 100% sure. So is it something you can catch? Not necessarily something you can catch. I think the causes of Crohn's is believed to be more due to a combination of environmental, immune, and maybe even bacterial factors. And also genetics has a component to it as well. So if you have a relative with Crohn's disease, there's a chance that you may have in your DNA susceptibility to developing Crohn's disease. But just because you have the genes for it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get it. You have to have certain environmental factors, maybe certain exposures to different bacterial organisms. There's thought that bacterial pathogens or gastroenteritis can perhaps trigger immune system to overramp itself and produce inflammation. So long story short, there are people out there who are dedicating their lives to figuring out the causes of this. And it's important because learning the causes can help us pinpoint the treatments. The beauty of the world of inflammatory bowel disease is we now have treatments for Crohn's disease. It used to be just steroids, steroids, steroids. Now we actually have better drugs on the market and science is always coming up with new things to kind of help people get their inflammation under control. With these medications, man, it has saved a lot of patients from having to undergo surgery. So let's say that you do have a relative with Crohn's disease. At what age does it tend to be diagnosed? Who are the people who should be you know, getting investigated or tested for this? A lot of the pediatric population, we're starting to see that people can be diagnosed as early as six years old, seven years old, eight years old. They can present with having watery diarrhea, crampy abdominal pain, a lot of vague things, multiple trips to the bathroom during the day. Definitely, it can affect adults. So people in their 20s and 30s, for Crohn's specifically, you can you can definitely do that. There's this thing in medicine we call a bimodal distribution. Now, what does that mean? Well, it turns out that we look at patients who are young going into their 20s and even early 30s and we look at those that's one group where if they develop symptoms and Crohn's can usually present at that age group but as it turns out for patients in their 60s, 70s and even 80s that's the second group of patients who if they develop symptoms they can that Crohn's and, infl- and, and ulcerative colitis and other forms of inflammation can present in that particular age group. So those are the two clusters of patients we tend to see, people who tend to be rather young, and also those who are a little bit more on the senior citizen side of things. Along those lines, you'd mentioned a lot of these symptoms here. And the first thing that came to my mind is that all the things you described, like the irritability, the pain, like the diarrhea, things like that, they seem to be fairly nonspecific symptoms. At what point do you start to wonder, like, oh, this is something worth looking into, or this is something that could actually be Crohn's versus, oh, this is just a regular case of diarrhea or even irritable bowel or something like that. Well, I think diarrhea means different things to different patients and different people. Gastroenterologists, we try to quantify exactly what happens and how often is it happening. Some people say I have diarrhea and they actually only have one bowel movement a day. 
it just happens that that bowel movement is soft and loose and it's not as well formed as they would like. For me, a diarrhea means if you're going to the bathroom three to, any more than three times a day, and if they're large to small, large volume, watery stools with blood, or bloody diarrhea can also present. Now, typically, they used to say bloody diarrhea is more in patients with ulcerative colitis and not Crohn's. I, you know, I, you can see it in both groups. If you're a person who gets more than, say, three to six bowel movements a day, watery stools, sometimes blood, a lot of mucus, and if you're losing weight and you're having pain associated with it, then you're probably someone that we would probably want to, you probably need to go and get things checked out. Ultimate uh, is a good segue to talking about endoscopy and kind of what we gastroenterologists do to evaluate things. Patients may need to undergo endoscopic evaluation where we may need to use fiber optic cameras to take a look inside the GI system and to perform colonoscopy is a test that a lot of patients ultimately will learn about what that is at the age of 50 because of colon cancer screening. But it is a very powerful tool in helping to evaluate uh, and diagnose inflammatory bowel disease, not to mention kind of help monitor the progress of it. So let's talk about endoscopy. So a colonoscopy, gastroscopy, endoscopy, all of these cameras on tubes originally go back to 1806 when Dr. Philip Bozzini, this is a great names episode. I cannot get over how wonderful this is. So when Dr. Bozzini in Germany used the very first endoscope, uh, which actually was a tin tube attached to a candle on one end and a mirror on the other, and he used it to view the bladder. So that was actually his version of a cystoscope called the lick leather. You know, as a side note, I had to wonder about the logistics of doing any of these procedures back then at a time when there was no anesthesia and two well, I'm glad so you flexible. brought up the lack of flexibility in the tubes because, Bargava, were you aware that your specialty was originally perfected in the circus? <laughs> I I believe you made that clear to me one day. <laughs> but yeah, 1806 was the very first kind of scope invented ever with just a mirror and a candle. Kind of like you imagine when you're a little kid and playing submarine and you have two mirrors. It's just you replace one of those mirrors with a light source so you can peer around corners. But in 1868, back in the Victorian era, but this time in Germany, Dr. Adolf Kussmaul devised the very first gastroscope, which was a straight, rigid metal tube that would be passed over a previously inserted flexible obturator or, you know, bendy stick. He perfected the technique on a sword swallower, and it's because he became very frustrated with his inability to see a tumor in the stomach, and he noted that sword swallowers could take these long, well swords and swallow them and he's like you know that would be super handy in medicine but i can't make all of my patients be sword swallowers so what did he do he made a very careful study of a famous sword swallower and by noting the position in which this gentleman held his head realized that it opened up the digestive tract and it would then be possible to introduce an inflexible tube through the esophagus and into the stomach so the very first endoscope was devised based on circus techniques. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I mean, definitely the field of endoscopy has gotten a lot better over the past century, and I am so grateful for that because I don't think patients would be coming to me, see me. And are, so are they eager? What, what is endoscopy? Why is it usually used today? So endoscopy is really... this. 
it, it's my passion. So I was one of those guys who went into medical school thinking I wanted to be a surgeon. And so GI seemed to come come, come through because it was procedural. So anyway, endoscopy. It's basically use of a flexible fiber optic tube, camera, a tube, whereby we pass it either through the mouth when we're doing an EGD or an esophago-gastroduodenoscopy, say that five times fast, or a colonoscopy to evaluate the lower GI tract, and particularly the colon and maybe the last part of the small intestine. Endoscopy is helpful because we can examine the esophagus, the stomach, the first part of the small intestine. We can even do enteroscopy now to look in the small bowel a little deeper. And then, of course, there's colonoscopy, where you can go from below and take a look at the entire colon to make sure that there's no inflammation, polyps, growths, anything that could cause disease. It's been a very, and it's also a way by which we can get biopsies so that a pathologist can look under a microscope to see exactly what's going on and what's causing certain things. Upper endoscopy, they're generally quick tests, take about 15 minutes. Actually, you're in, you're out. The longest part is really getting checked in, getting an IV, administering sedation and recovering you. A lot of practitioners in GI provide their own sedation, which we call moderate sedation. Other times we may get doctors like pros to or anesthesiologists uh, to help sedate the patient so that we can focus things a little bit more or for patients who can't tolerate the procedure or perhaps are at high risk for moderate sedation. And colonoscopy, generally speaking, and a routine screening colonoscopy, looking for polyps and evaluating for colon cancer takes about 30 minutes, but it can be as involved as you need it to be. Worst case scenario, these procedures can take maybe an hour and a half, two hours. It really doesn't take that long. It's used for both diagnostic as well as therapeutic. So in order, we can see what exactly is going on inside the stomach. We can look for ulcers. We can look for inflammation. We can look for polyps or growths. Uh, we can look, for, if we're really concerned about cancer, let's say you got an x-ray or a CAT scan that shows something in your GI tract that needs to be evaluated, we can definitely take a look at it. And we can also get biopsies to see what's going on. For treatment of things, you know, there's, that's the therapeutic nature of endoscopy. Certainly, there are things we can do for patients who have issues with swallowing. Maybe this, they, they swallowed that sword, and as a result, they now have injury to their esophagus, and then they develop scar tissue, which leads to a stricture. And as a result, food gets stuck and doesn't pass through their esophagus. These are patients where we can actually do things like dilate the esophagus or use balloons. So there's a lot of things we can do from a therapeutic side of things to do it. A lot of times if people have bleeding or gastrointestinal bleeding, either from an ulcer or maybe they are losing blood somewhere, we can use endoscopy to help treat these patients and, and, and stop bleeding. Um, and so oftentimes we'll be called in even for in, in the middle of the night for emergent scopes to kind of do that. While we're on these lines, and maybe you're going to get to it. Um, one of the times that we're almost always involved with these procedures is... Um, when you do a special type of upper endoscopy called an ERCP. Yeah. That's my, that's one of the things I'm specially trained in. So this is kind of why why I do advanced endoscopy. So I did an additional fourth year to help train myself in EOS, endoscopic ultrasound and ERCP. So ERCP is a, is a different type of endoscopy used to help with patients with pancreatic biliary diseases. Liver makes bile. The most common indication for doing an ERCP is whenever you develop a gallstone. Bile goes into these little tubes called bile ducts. And then your gallbladder used to be called a vestigial organ. We now know it's not necessarily a vestigial organ, meaning it does have a purpose. It is used to store bile. And then whenever you eat something with a lot of fat, specifically, the gallbladder contracts and then you secrete bile into your intestines. 
a lot of people can develop gallstones, and stones can form for a variety of reasons. If you develop gallstones, it's possible that the gallbladder can get inflamed. If the gallbladder does get inflamed, then, then we call that cholecystitis, and that's usually something that a surgeon needs to get involved with. If a t- stone gets it makes its way into the bile ducts and gets impacted on its way out to the duodenum, that can cause severe pain. It can even cause inflame the pancreas. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN which is an organ that's right next to the bile ducts. And if that gets inflamed, then you get pancreatitis, which leads to pain, nausea, vomiting, and overall not so not many good things. But then if you still have that stone, you can also develop an infection. We call that cholangitis, and then we get really concerned about that. So that's where we're called to do an ERCP, to go in and try to go from the intestinal side of things to try to go into the bile ducts to try to get the stone out. The bile ducts can also get inf- can get affected by blockages or strictures, as I mentioned. So strictures can involve any part of the GI tract, including the esophagus, the small bowel, uh, and the colon. Cancers can also cause it. And so that's kind of where I come into play because if there is a cancer that causes a blockage, you know, Sometimes a surgeon can come in and kind of help get the to- either get the cancer out, but if they're not able to, then there needs to be ways to help bypass these things. I mean, certainly we've all heard of why people need to have scopes done. If not in great detail, you've certainly filled us in. But alternately, I've, I've heard it described as yeah. the most difficult UFO catcher game, like those little claw games in the arcades, or trying to maneuver <laughs> a full fire hose yeah. around tight corners. What's it like driving a scope? Driving a scope is, let's put it this way. If you've ever played with a telephone cable wire, you know, or something that thin, or any of your VCR, VC what now? Or well, what am I talking about? We don't have VCRs anymore. Uh, <laughs> uh, if you're if you're hooking up your uh, HDMI cable to your Blu-ray, for example, imagine it's flexible. So, but you're able, but it's stiff enough to where if you push it through an open space, it goes one to one, right? But now you got to get it to move around turns. That's where we have. A control, which really there's two dials on the on the on the endoscope. There's a big wheel and a little wheel. Big wheel usually means up and controls the up and down movements of a scope, and your little wheel controls the side to side. Almost all GI docs are operating this with their left hand with the wheels, kind of driving the direction where the tip of the scope is going to deflect. And then you have the rest of your scope, which is a long flexible tube, which you have to kind of advance. But then you also have to kind of turn it side to side. So it in a way I think a claw game is probably the best way to do it because you need 
two you you have lots of dimensions and with this simple instrument you can kind of control all the different axes left right in out over and out BA select start 30 lives yes (laughs) (laughs) driving the scope is a lot of fun for people who spent their childhood playing some video games or learning a musical instrument and those of us who grew up to become gastroenterologists it's a piece of cake I should also mention on top of that, that in addition to manipulating directions and pushing, and pushing the scope um, to go where you want, there's also several more buttons to, for example, fill the stomach full of air or pass written tubes so you can take samples. So you had to steer and you had to do other maneuvers on top of it. So it's can get certainly very complex. You're going to have to it's look, even... yeah, anyone who's training to do this, it's it's like muscle memory. You you do enough, you you stop thinking, you, you, you assign a finger to each button and, and your thumb to do one thing. And it does definitely require some coordination and uh, there's all sorts of different things we, we can do. I want to jump into another historical point uh, from 1907. Bhargava, have you ever heard of perpetual pills, an era where most physicians would make their own medications? One of the biggest solutions to most problems is throw it up or poop it out. And in order to help, and you know, these kinds of medications were called purgatives because they would make you purge. So from a 1907 pharmaceutical guide, a lot of apothecaries sold what were called perpetual pills made of antimony. That's metallic antimony from the periodic table with no other compounds. These would be swallowed, would then irritate the mucous membrane as they pass through the intestine, thus acting as a purgative. It would make you either vomit or give you diarrhea and could then be recovered from the chamber pot. Wait for it. Washed. Keep waiting and used again indefinitely. And people loved it because after the first capital outlay, after you bought your first perpetual pill, there was no further need for spending money on laxatives or cathartics. So perpetual pills were treated as heirlooms and would pass through one generation to the next quite literally. Yeah. No, no. We, <laughs> we'll keep that in mind. I know. So we don't do I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Bhargava. It's, it's very economical for a single <laughs> pill could serve a whole family during their lives. And I don't know so much about transmitting these as heirlooms. There's definitely a few floating around in museums and and pawn shops. (laughs) Literally. (laughs) Because that's good money you're flushing down the toilet. I I bring it up only as a historical point because if you were sitting there coveting grandma's perpetual pill, you probably wouldn't have had to wait too long to get your hands into her chamber pot because another side effect of taking antimony is severe poisoning and death. So these things didn't quite work out, you know, over the long run. But it, this was, again, for a long time, this was the laxative. Oh, take this, you know. Well, who was it in last week? Ah, your father. Stop asking questions. Um, and then... <laughs> yeah. That brings up a, another interesting topic for me, um, if you guys don't mind. Another reason we may, be, you, we may be asked to do endoscopy is, let's say you have a little kid, or you have an idiot in college who decides to take a bet and swallow a bunch of quarters or swallow a bunch of foreign objects and all of a sudden doesn't feel good. We'll come in to do that. And then there's patients who have psychological, psychiatric illnesses or for whatever reason decide they want to swallow a razor blade or hurt them, ingest something to hurt themselves. You, and you guys things. are the professional so, claw game. How good are you at those UFO catch? Let's put it this way. After my GI, GI fellowship, I got a lot better at doing the UFO catcher games for sure. <laughs> so that's another reason we you may want need help from a gastroenterologist. And I, f- I feel bad for my pediatric colleagues because they probably are more likely to get called in the middle of the night 
my kid swallowed something and it needs to come out. If you wait too long, it might just pass into the small intestine where we may have no choice but to let it pass completely. To be clear, these objects do need to remain intact for you to be able to retrieve them. So anyone trying a Tide Pod challenge probably is... Right, because the Tide Pod, the risk of going after one is that you can break the plastic and then spill the chemicals into the GI tract and that's that. So there are certain things that we as gastroenterologists are told do not believe, like these body smugglers, for example, if they try to swallow a dime bag of Coke... And I do know what that is, <laughs> not from personal experience, but because I have a <laughs> profession. These are probably patients that we should not be retrieving these out because guess what? If you rip the bag, now you got a bunch of cocaine absorbed through the GI tract, which is not a good idea. So there are things we are told to retrieve and there are things we should not. I don't think anyone ever really goes after that because we just pr- let it pass and hope that it goes on its own. And, and I think the body smugglers know this better than we do because they say, you know what? You are not going to be. You, so the only the way to fish it out is for me to pass it out. So, the strangest thing you've ever pulled out of somebody, or yes, the most memorable thing you've ever pulled out of someone. There was one patient who had a, who swallowed a butter knife. Uh, that took a couple of sessions to get out, and we had to use all sorts of tools and different multiple trips to the OR to not because we had to do surgery. Let but that be a lesson, future sword swallowers. Start big, um, not small. And then, <laughs> every now and then, and, and prisoners, of course, will try to swallow something so they can get out of jail and go to the hospital and get a break from, from the big house. There was one patient who had a tendency, a pension for swallowing razor blades. One time, this particular patient would tape the three, three or four, two or two, three razor blades together, swallow it. If you were lucky and you found that there, it was still taped by the time you got to the stomach, great. Sometimes the tape would break and then you'd have three pieces and you have to go after each piece one by one. And then there was one time where the razor blades passed beyond the stomach and into the small bowel and we ended up having to go do a colonoscopy to retrieve them. That was interesting and that was fun and we, we would see all three pieces so I'd have to go through the colon three times, essentially, to fish out one razor blade after another. So that, I think, was a little bit more memorable. Um, had patients swallow screws, had patients swallow knives. Uh, in different GI fellowship programs, sometimes there will be a hall of fame, meaning a, a, a big jar where it'll. Do, a lot of fellows will keep, put these objects in there as a, as a trophy case of showing the stuff that was removed. So, yes, <laughs> that is... That has been something that we have seen. And yes, they can totally cause injury um, to the GI tract. And retrieving them, you know, can also, causing injury can be a risk of retrieving them as well. So, again, do not advise it. Just because we can come after it doesn't mean you should swallow it anyway. Now, I I think I remember hearing of (laughs) a famous case of there was an old woman who, who swallowed a fly. I don't know why she swallowed the fly, but... Would she die? <laughs> I don't know. Food impactions, I mentioned esophageal strictures where you'll have a blockage. And if you eat a big piece of meat and it gets stuck in the esophagus and you can't, it's not passing on its own. Yeah, we're going to have to go in to fish that out or push it through or, or assist in that one way or the other. But people who eat bugs and that sort of thing, yeah, we're not going in to do that unless it's causing a major blockage or obstruction to all you anthony bourdain lovers out there you got to do what you got to do but generally speaking we don't necessarily have to fish for those things if it's not necessarily dangerous to you so one thing um i always worry about along those lines and this is also sort of delving into my area of the body as well as anesthesiologists we're always worried about aspiration 
And so anytime anybody swallows anything, whether it be nails or pieces of metal, coins, razor blades or whatnot, there is always that risk of not only going down and damaging further in the GI tract, but also coming up, potentially going into the lungs and causing other airway damage, asphyxiation, things like Mm -hmm. that. Have you seen that happen or is it just something that we're just being paranoid about? Aspiration is nothing to really be paranoid about, but I think we need to really to assess if aspiration is important. So it's it's interesting because heartburn or chronic GERD, you know, anesthesiologists are taught that this can be lead to an increased risk of aspiration. That may be be, may be true, but I mean, if if a patient is not having anything to eat or drink and we do a scope and we take a look and we see that the inside of their stomach is empty there's really not much to aspirate on so but that being said eating these things i think aspiration's a bigger risk if you have a food impaction perhaps but then again your esophagus is plugged up nothing's going in nothing's coming out so in terms of airway management that's always important to kind of consider a gastroenterologist the minute they go in and take a look and see that the food stomach is full of food and if it's a procedure that needs to be done, you know, then we may simply come out and ask you guys to help assist in their airway management a little bit further. It is an important thing to consider. It's nothing to be paranoid about per se, but it's important to be understanding and realistic about. Um, I sure. think it's time to call back to that very first episode and talk a little bit about poop. Because why wouldn't we? It's just so much fun. So we'll get to the Bristol stool scale in just a moment, but I'm going to ask you guys a couple questions. Just to hazard a guess, we'll play prices right rules. Uh, how much does poop weigh on average? Like a normal bowel movement. 200, 201. And true prices right <laughs> I'm going to go with half You're a pound. You're both right, so there's not a lowest there. It, it ranges from about more, two and a half ounces to one pound on average. And that's, and that's why a lot of people think, oh, if I can lose a pound with every bowel movement, maybe if I just poop a lot, that'll help me lose weight. And this happens on the highest levels of sports where there's laxative abuse and it's, it's not pretty. So uh, it can also cause a lot of other problems, which we're not going to go into, but on the grand scheme of things, dropping a deuce will budge the number on the scale slightly, but it's not going to alter your body composition or muscle percentage. And one pound in does not guarantee one pound out because food is metabolized differently and certain foods are absorbed more efficiently while others pass right through. And I'm looking at you, corn. Here's another fun one. <laughs> How much? And this was one that was submitted and I had to go look it up and there was a study. Mm-hmm. So... How much do farts weigh? This is something people wanted to know. You guys want to take a guess? There's a way to quantify this. I was unaware of it before before doing the research for this episode. And there's a way to quantify this. Huh. Go on. What do you think? This is in England uh, who tried to determine a fart's weight by giving study participants 200 grams of baked beans in addition to their normal diet. This, of course, is because beans, beans are a magical fruit. The more you eat, the more you toot. The more you toot, the better you feel. So the scientists gave patients a bunch of beans to eat. He used a rectal catheter over the course of 24 hours to measure the amount of gas passed by each one of these patients, which raises some serious concerns about the stability of the participants. Who, who wants to sign up for that study? They found that farts come equally from both genders, oh and you are passing somewhere along the lines of 16 to 50 ounces of gas per day. That is a minimum of two Coke cans of gas a day. 28 ounces to a pound. 
for those of you who use metric. Now, the final thing I want to talk about is the Bristol stool scale. There is a chart that tells you the seven different kinds of hoop classification. Bargava, have you come across this in your career? My friends and fellowship have posters of it in their own bathrooms, believe it or not. So go and just Google image search the Bristol stool scale. It's safe for work. Most of it's cartoony. It's not, you know, live, real action pictures. But in terms of bowel health, you should have certain requirements, regardless of how many bowel movements you're having a day, you should be able to have these basic concepts. You should be able to hold on for a short time after you feel the first urge to go to the toilet, you know, allowing you time to get there without any accidental loss of feces. You should be able to pass a bowel movement within about a minute or two of sitting down on the toilet. You should be able to pass a bowel movement easily and without pain. So you shouldn't be straining or struggling to pass a bowel movement. And you should be able to completely empty your bowel after a movement so you don't have to go back to the toilet soon after to pass more. Anything that deviates from those principles usually means something is going on. Could be constipation, could be diarrhea, could be nothing you know, of concern, but it means it's not necessarily normal. So the Bristol stool chart gives you a handy guide as to what types of different stool there are, and that can help people figure out what the problem may be. So type one looks like little bunny pellets, separate lumps like nuts, hard to pass. And that usually means... Your poop is staying in the intestines too long, so water is being reabsorbed, and this can lead this can mean a lack of dietary fiber and can lead to these hard pellet-like lumps. And then you move on to type two, which is sausage-shaped but lumpy. You usually see these in people who are recovering from diarrhea or maybe don't have enough fiber in their diet. They have some, but they could use more fiber or more water. Then you get to type three, which is described as like a sausage, but with cracks on its surface. And type four, which is like a snake, smooth and soft. Type three and four are considered to be normal bowel movements. You'll notice I'm not saying anything about length. So those of you who are thinking, well, I had a super long one. Hey, good for you. Uh, but the time when you pinch off the loaf does not make any difference for your health. So, And that usually you see in a good diet with enough fiber and water. Then you get to type five, soft blobs with clear-cut edges passed easily. Could mean that your diet is a little protein-heavy and you are not necessarily absorbing quite as well, but you're still not necessarily in danger. Like when it's too liquid, it's moving through the intestines too quick, so water is not being absorbed. This can be due to an increase in fiber or a cleanse or even an infection in some cases. Uh, if it floats above the level of the water, you're probably not absorbing fat properly. And that could be due to weight loss drugs or a malabsorption condition such as celiac disease. Uh, then you get to type six, fluffy pieces with ragged edges and a mushy stool. That is almost always indicative of usually some kind of laxative or malabsorption issue. And type seven, watery, no solid pieces, entirely liquid. That can be seen in things like a starvation diet or usually an infection. Uh, the one and only most dangerous type of stool is if you're seeing pencil thin with a lot of straining. And that could normally indicate some kind of an obstruction. And obstruction can often, but not always, mean a big problem, even a dangerous cancel, cancer. So don't ignore your pencil poop. 
ask questions and never let a thin pass without an interview. <laughs> Excellent advice. Excellent advice. Um, so for anyone who's interested in doing further reading, one of the there's actually an expert in intestinal gas and gastroenterology. It's Michael Levitt. He's a researcher for University of Minnesota. I'm just going to give him a little shout out here. He's been he, some of the stuff he's published in the past. His work goes dates back to the 70s. I'm just going to read some titles, for example, of, of stuff he's written. Follow-up of a flatulent patient was an article that he published in 1979 in Digestive Diseases and Sciences. Flatulence, only the nose knows. The relation of passage of gas and abdominal bloating to colonic gas production. Evaluation of an extremely flatulent patient. Tolerance to the daily ingestion of two cups of milk by individuals claiming lactose intolerance. Morning breath odor. Influence of treatments on sulfur gases. Effectiveness of devices reported to f- reduce flat flatus order, o- odor. Just long story short, there's this stuff is actually much more studied and researched than we like to believe. So I do recommend that. And just a little interesting side note. Rumor has it that Dr. Levitt's son is Stephen Levitt, who happened to write the book Freakonomics. So I'm sure the, the, the reading material would be very, very interesting for that. <laughs> So that brings us to the end of this episode. And as always, we like to end on a little bit of a travel vibe. So let's get a just the tip. Bargava, we would love to hear, do you have a favorite or memorable travel experience? The most recent trip we took was to Japan, and I highly recommend doing that. Japan was great because we went from Tokyo down to Osaka, and we went hiking on a lot of these Meiji uh, temples and, and Buddhist pilgrimages. It was very, very, a lot of Hanju temples and the Hanju route we did. And it was a lot of fun. I'd highly recommend doing that in a group if you're, if you're able to do it. But for me, my favorite place to go to that I plan on going to again and again and again will be Italy just because I like to eat food. By the way, pasta shock, I learned a new meaning of it. We all think of pasta shock as eat a lot of pasta, you get sleepy because of the carbs. Carbs can a lot of carb heavy foods can also be constipating. So that was a different type of pasta shock that me and my wife experienced when we went on our honeymoon to Italy. So just just to kind of tie in there. So yeah. So make sure you carry your prunes when you're going to Italy. Yeah, a little bit of olive oil also would probably help uh, before you get that pasta shock. I don't think I had heard the term used in that way before. (laughs) I got to be honest. I think I came up with that myself. But there you go. Well, that is absolutely wonderful. So thank you so much for joining us, um, Bhargava. I really appreciate it. Anytime. I look forward to many more in the future. And that concludes this episode of Travel Medicine. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, as well as any sources for papers that we read doing the research. The show is produced by me with a lot of help from all our co-hosts. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Happy travels, everyone. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.